0: So the series we're going to do the next, tonight and the next two Thursdays on this topic, The Three Marks or the Three Characteristics of Existence, which is a pretty weighty title. As I look around, some people here I, I know, and I know there are people here who've been for who a long-time Dharma practitioners and, uh, and are quite familiar with not only practice but the teachings and then many people who I don't recognize, and I imagine there are people here who might be relatively new and perhaps haven't heard this particular piece of the teaching. So what I wanted to do tonight is just take the first few minutes and kind of back up and just set a context on what is this about, where does it fit in, and why would we even care about it, talk about it. And then we'll actually start into to this list of these three qualities. And as we go through them over the next uh, over these three evenings, we'll look at the teachings themselves, but also how we can apply it in, into our practice, how it might be useful, why we might care about it. And actually from a practical uh, point of view also. And then I also have some suggestions if anybody is interested to take a little homework, a practice homework, then I have some thoughts on how you might work with it during the week if you choose to. I'm hoping we'll have plenty of discussion. I have a few things I want to say, but uh, my intention is to, is to open it up for as much discussion as we all want. Okay. So to start, it's important to understand The concept of what is called ultimate or unconditioned truth or reality and relative or conditioned truth, these two levels of truth. And all schools of Buddhism talk about these two levels of truth. Most religions, I have to be careful to say most religions, but of the major religions that I'm familiar with, most of them have some concept of whether it's the great spirit or God or the highest truth or maybe in Hinduism, the highest, the ultimate true self or whatever they call it, talking about that which really is beyond words, beyond really the limits of the human mind, right? Right. But it doesn't stop people from trying to talk about it. So, for example, if, if you hear people speak of God, often there'll be all these positive adjectives. You know, God is fill in whatever it is for you. If, it's, if you have a positive association, it might be infinite love or compassion or all-knowing or all-powerful or whatever. So, so we kind of point to something there. But, of course, anything we say is going to fall short of what it is what that really is, right? We can't get it, right? It's beyond, beyond the beyond, if you want it. That's how it's talked about often. The Buddha... In later schools of Buddhism, this ultimate reality does get talked about more in positive terms. From the teachings that have survived to this day, from the Buddha, as much as we can tell... He pointed towards it. Sometimes he tried to talk about it a little bit. But mostly he was concerned with this other level of truth, the relative or the conditional level. And when we use this word, I like the words unconditioned or, and conditioned. It's, that's really important as we get into this, as we start looking at what this is really all about is our ultimate well-being or our happiness And we'll talk about a relative or conditioned level of happiness, which is a condition because it's dependent upon or conditioned by circumstances, which is actually where most of us spend most of our time looking for our happiness. And we'll talk about that. The unconditioned, because it's not dependent upon or conditioned upon anything, it's that level of well-being, or sometimes called happiness, doesn't depend upon anything. It doesn't depend upon having a pleasant or happy or good experience. It, it's, it, we drop down underneath the pleasant or unpleasant or the good or the bad, and it's a deeper level of well-being or happiness that is really what's being talked about in Dharma teachings. It's pointing us to this unconditioned level. So um, these three characteristics of existence as we'll see, are tools. They're considered gateways when we really come to know them well, not just as concepts. We start off knowing them as concepts. And as we learn to practice with them and the direct... Uh, I was going to say experience, but that's not right, but the direct just um, insights and openings into these one or more of these characteristics, and they're actually all intimately interrelated, is considered a doorway into deeper levels of liberation. I think it's also important to say that, um, which is I think obvious, that we all come to, come into a meditation group like this for an evening or the Dharma, whatever level you plug into groups like this or this practice or these kind of teachings, we all come at it from maybe uh, looking for something different uh, it may be a bigger or lesser part of each of our lives, just depending on where, you know, how it fits for, for all of us. The beauty of these teachings is, is that to what, however, and to whatever level we want to plug in, they work. And we're going to talk specifically about that. We, you know, as I look around, I don't see any monks or nuns here. So... Um, I assume some of us may have been, I don't know, but you know we're all living in the world. We have a life, whatever that is for each of us. I'll bet if we went around, we won't take the time to do it, but if we went around and asked people why they come to a meditation practice or what draws them, some people may not even really know. But I think for most of us, it will be some, you know, the common answers you tend to get are people are looking for some peace, right? Some tranquility, some kind of happiness. Maybe there's a part where, you know, there's the difficulties of just being a human being in life and trying to find a way to be in the world. Um, in the face of all the difficulties and, and challenges is just, just to be alive and just to be a human being. And, and just to we really just want to be okay, Really, right? And we all know uh, it's hard to do. That's not, not such a big goal, just to want to be okay, have life be all right, right? That's not asking that much. It's not like we're trying to be the president or a movie star, or, you know. Or, I mean, that's okay if you want. But I'm just saying, you just want to be okay. And when we, but we start to realize that we have times in life, hopefully we all have sometimes some of us more than others where we maybe we are okay but also there's that and actually let me read something here that I, uh this is from um some of you heard this before this is from a teacher and he's not a buddhist his name is Hari Das he's a, in in the hindu yoga world but i think he really touches on something here uh and this is, this is a quote from him. And it ties directly into what we're going to talk about in the three characteristics. He says, Our lives are based on assumptions about ourselves and the world around us that are thoroughly out of touch with reality and, and seriously impair our ability to function. It gets worse. <laughs> These assumptions, are, these assumptions are more than intellectual beliefs. Quote, I am a human mind and a human body, unquote. He, he's saying, you, you may or may not agree with it or like it, but he's saying the notion that I'm a human mind and a human body is thoroughly out of touch with reality and seriously impairs our ability to function. He goes on, In fact, this notion is so deeply rooted in our consciousness that few of us would ever think of questioning it. We live our entire existence from this point of view, seeking those things, situations, and people that make us happy and avoiding those things that make us unhappy. But even when conditions seem ideal to us, there is always that nagging certainty somewhere in our minds that the situation will eventually change that the security and happiness of the moment will ultimately be lost. In truth, we are never totally at peace. There is always something to be anxious about. Ordinary life is really a constant dilemma. So that sounds pretty grim to me. <laughs> and for me, it touches something that rings true from for me. And you can just look into some heads. People's heads are nodding. Others, you know, you have to look into your own life. You know, we don't need Hari Das or the Buddha to tell us about difficulty and suffering. We're all experts. Isn't that true? We know doesn't mean we don't have to, happiness in the good parts of life, too. But there's also that peace, That right? He goes on. He ends by saying... Um, uh, that spiritual, spirituality means l- learning how to live life as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of from the point of view of dilemma. And that's the piece of hope and the promise that's held out with these teachings of this practice. It doesn't just end with it's all suffering, it's all terrible, life's horrible. It ends with that there is a way to live life as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of from the point of view of dilemma. So these whole teachings on the three characteristics are one way to start to first look realistically at the human condition and then to make a shift in where we look for our happiness. That's the whole teaching. The reason the Buddha tends to look into the and talk a lot about how we live in the ordinary—I shouldn't say ordinary, but in the conditional or relative world—is that's the world. That's what we have to work with. So rather than talking, spending a lot of time talking about this ultimate reality, which we may or may not even care about or believe in so much of the emphasis is put on looking to where where we create our own suffering and how, when we start to wake up, and which a lot of the meditation practice is about, becoming more conscious and aware and awake, so we're not so reactive, that we we stop looking in the wrong places for our happiness, which is creating our own suffering. And once that starts to fall away, and i don't know why this is true but some of you know and if you don't just i'll tell you that there is such a thing as an inner deeper happiness that can be that's accessible that ties more towards an unconditional i don't know what the ultimate unconditional happiness is but that is less dependent on circumstances and more is that cliche of that inner happiness that can be found that's talked about in, in meditation, right? Okay. So the three characteristics... Well, first let me just stop. So I wanted to, Now I was going to shift over actually going into there, but I wanted to stop and see if anybody had a, a comment, a question of anything about what was said so far. Okay. So I'll say a little more. We'll take plenty of times to... Stop or, or anytime if you want to raise your hand, that's fine. These three characteristics of existence, then, are qualities or characteristics of this relative or conditional world. That's what we're talking about. We're not trying to even talk about the ultimate anymore. We kind of put that aside. So let me... I'm going to give the English and the Polly words. You don't have to remember these Polly words, and I tend to shy away from them. But for a few of the lists, there's a few of the words that you may be interested in. Like we use the word dukkha a lot, you may hear. right? That's one of the three. The dharma is another one. So the three are um, what normally called impermanence, anicca. The second one, and don't worry if you don't remember it. You're going to know them by the time it's all done. The second one, dukkha, which is we it tends to get translated as suffering, but that's a terrible translation. A much better translation would be, I don't know if this is really a word, but unsatisfactoriness, which would include suffering, but it's it gets a lot more subtle. It's not just suffering, dukkha. And then the third is kind of the real tough one probably for most of us, which is anatta, which is, well, no self. Right? That's a big. that's what Buddhism's kind of famous for is saying that we don't have a self. Right? That's we have to. We'll get to that not tonight, but later. But that's something we need to understand clearly because it's not saying that there's not a. I mean, we're all here. <laughs> so it's not saying that you don't exist, but it's it's um, it's really saying there's not a permanent, fixed. Unchanging self, and, what, and we want to look and see, well, what is this thing we call the self? It's not saying there's nothing occurring. Okay. So, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, selflessness. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Okay. Typically, when, not, definitely there are times when people hear these teachings, they don't like it. Right. You mean nothing's going to last? It's a characteristic of all existence. Nothing's permanent. Nothing's going to last. And nothing, while it is here, isn't going to be satisfying anyway? And to top it off, I don't even have a self? <laughs> Wait a minute. This does not sound good. <laughs> However, it's misunderstanding though that gets us into trouble. When we actually understand them clearly and that's what I'm hoping we'll will do, we see it's not bad news. It's just the way things are. It's not bad. Everything is okay. And that it's us who make a problem because we don't like how things are. Right? So if it, if, as we talk about it, if, if it seems difficult, some of these you don't like it or if it makes you feel uncomfortable or whatever, I just want to suggest that you, you know, let those feelings be there. You know, we are, we're Vipassana practitioners, so we're good at connecting with our feelings and, and get to know those feelings. But hang in there with it as we go through. I don't know if some of you, you know, may or may not be here for the whole time, but hang in there with, with it as we go through the process and just kind of let the process unfold and, and withhold judgment until the end. Okay. Maybe that's and not freak out about it or anything. Okay. So the first on this list. Well, let me stop again and see if anybody wants to say anything. Because we're going to go into the first one. Anicca, impermanence. Okay. You mean I was trying to talk about what in Buddhism they call the two truths? Yes. yes so. do you, is there a... Do you, what, what's going on in your mind? Well, I'm just wondering, are those like just synonyms for each other? Oh, yeah. Do you mean... Um, when I think of relative, I think of, you know, everything is relative. Like, this person might get it this way, another person might get it. It's irrelevant. That's not what I mean, although I think there is an aspect. I I, I That's why I like con- unconditioning condition because... I don't tend to find that some of these other words, they have a lot of connotations. Excuse me, have different connotations for different people. So, you know, this unconditioned is God. Okay, there, you know, whatever. Ultimate, unmanifest, deepest, highest truth. Even those words, they're so clumsy, it's already don't like it. I don't know what else. Maybe someone's got better words. And then everything else, basically all of existence, the entire universe, is what's called conditioned. I was saying relative, mm-hmm. d- conventional reality. Okay. And I'll just throw this piece in. in there, um, so there are, there's a traditional Buddhist cosmology that we don't really need to concern ourselves much with here but I'll just mention and you don't have to believe it at all but there's no doubt that in the Hindu culture that Buddhism came out of and in Buddhism a pretty complex cosmology developed that was believed in the Buddha talked about it a lot of all these different realms of existence here where we live is is one out of many different realms there's hell realms and heaven realms and all these different realms of existence. Okay? The only reason I mention that is it does, most people in the West don't tend to talk about it all that much. You don't have to concern yourself with it particularly. But we're not talking about, when we talk about ultimate or, or, or this unconditioned, the Buddha's not talking about a real nice heaven realm. That's still, it, it's, it's more pleasant than, than, than what we, the human realm. And there's many different levels of these, what they call Deva realms, heaven realms. But I just want to make sure it's not like in a Christian or Jewish or or Muslim, I'm I'm going to say this all wrong, but kind of view of a heaven. That's not what what the unconditioned is. It steps out of that altogether. It's something even beyond the heaven realm. What's that? I don't know. I just wanted to say that. Okay. So, everything, even if you believe in heavens and hells and this realm, whatever, that's all part of the word that's used as samsara. That's the conditional realm, okay? All right. Well, let's just take a look here then at this thing, idea of impermanence. I think most of us know intellectually that nothing lasts, right? What lasts? We know everybody dies. Everybody gets old. Have you ever seen a very, very old person with like really clear, smooth skin? Ever once? Have you ever seen anybody, very, very old person, maybe a 100-year-old person, 90-year-old person, with a lot of vigor and strength, Ever? Not one. Maybe sometimes, you know, it'll make the newspaper where there's some... I remember I I used to run in Santa Cruz one year. I I was with a group of people who entered as a team in this triathlon. I did the swimming leg. And it was a big deal in the paper because there was these three men... And they called themselves the bicentennials because when you added their three, the three ages together, it was over 200 years. I think they were all in their 70s. And they'd been doing this for years. And so they were, in fact, they beat our team. <laughs> These guys were awesome. Right? How rare that is, they made the paper. The point being is look, everybody gets old, everybody gets sick. Everybody dies. We know it on a certain level. But we don't live our lives as if we know it. We don't live our lives as if we know it, right? This already is starting to point to uh, how just reflecting on impermanence, I mean, any thoughts how that might be useful? Anybody want to say anything? I think it's pretty obvious to me but it may not be obvious to everyone. Just to reflect on that. Not that it's we're not being morose or you know, we don't want to bum anyone out or anything. It's just we just want to recognize that the only reason I can see for even reflecting on something like that is what use is it in how it informs how I live now. That's the that's the that's the use of it, of reflecting on this impermanence. The reason that the core teaching, if you look at the four noble truths, is about suffering and the end of suffering, it's dukkha. It's dukkha and the end of dukkha. Is because the Buddha is focusing in this conditional realm. He's not talking about the unconditioned. And he says, first noble truth is saying that there is this dukkha, which we'll get to later. That's the second characteristic, is suffering, this unsatisfactoriness. The cause of it, what's the cause of it? It's clinging. And a, there, is, there is a freedom from clinging. This word clinging, there's a lot in there. It's not just saying, boy, I really want that new car. Oh, okay, I guess if I don't get it's, it. That's, that's one level, but there's a lot of other levels to it. The freedom from dukkha is in the clinging, is the freedom or the end of the clinging. That's the, the, And then the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path. So this core, basic, you know, cornerstone teaching of Buddhism of the four noble truths is just talking about clinging and the end of clinging. We start to get at that a little bit when we start to look at this first characteristic of impermanence. Right? We suffer not... It, but if things are going to change and we suffer because we don't want it to change and we hold on to it. We see impermanence everywhere. Just go out into the woods and take a walk. It's a great thing to do. Walk around. You'll see animals, you know. You'll see little baby birds, maybe, or squirrels or insects and you'll see healthy adults and maybe you'll see some dead animals or birds or insects lying around. Look at the trees. Um, little sprouts coming up, strong, healthy trees. Then some of them not looking so good. They're diseased. They're bent over. Some are halfway falling over. Some are already down. They're rotting logs. We see it everywhere: leaves, buds. I recently, um, um, a few months ago, I came back from having sat, uh, a long retreat, uh, and. Uh, I was there long enough for I was for almost a year, for eleven months, and so I was able to see that the cha- that seasons change. And um, I remember I would go out, and I, you know, there's just one bush that I like to look at. And especially as the spring came, in, going through all through the winter, you just watch it changing, and these little buds start to come. It was amazing. I mean, day by day, you could see them grow and they flower. And you know, in the fall, it all falls away and dies. You get to see these cycles. The earth itself, it's not going to last forever. The earth itself, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe is not going to last. So it's not a bad thing. It's just the way things are. When we get sick, and I look, I do this too. I don't like it. I'm getting ready to turn 52, which, you know, some of you look like you're a little older, some younger, but, you know, I'm sorry. Well seeing my body slow down. I, I've always been a very active kind of person involved in a lot of sports. I can really relate to what Ajahn Chah said. He said when he was young, his legs used to carry him. And now he has to carry, he, he's dead now, but he said, he said uh, so he doesn't have that problem, but he said, uh, uh, now he has to carry them. You know? Sometimes you look in the mirror and you just went, where did my youth go? What happened? I've had times—not so much these days in my life—but as you, you know, there's definitely been times in my life of some level of suffering around that. You know, I don't want to get old. Even already, it's like you know, I'm starting to get back trouble, and I never used to have back trouble. We think something's going wrong, but it's nothing going wrong. It's just the natural way. When it's our time to die, it's really not anything going wrong. So can we learn to kind of make peace a little bit with the way things are on this one level of of impermanence? Now, that's one level that I call the macro level. In a minute, I also want to talk about the micro level, which is a whole other level. But first, I just want to stop for a second um, and just see, like, uh, just see how to, if anybody feels like saying how you feel because I'm kind of just sitting here going on and on about we're going to die, nothing's going to last and I keep saying, it's okay, it's okay. Well, you might not think it's okay. <laughs> I remember, I'll just say this just one moment. Then I, I do remember once I did this uh, weekend seminar once years and years ago and it was one of these kind of get it down into your personal stuff and they take you through all these processes and and we got to a point where they just got you in touch with a lot of very heavy, difficult things. And it really, everything felt heavy. And I remember the facilitator said, it was the end of the Saturday, it was just a weekend, so the Saturday night had ended. And, he, and we were all going to go home and come back Sunday morning. He said, whatever you do, this is don't leave and not come back now. Because <laughs> we have to take you down, and then, but, but we're going to fly back up. All right. So, I don't know, maybe it's not a bummer for people talking like this, but I just want to check in a little bit. Cuz what I'm going to propose is is that um it's actually good news. It's not only not so bad, but there's actually uh some good news contained in that. But I just wanted to kind of touch in first and uh sorry, yeah, you you wanted to say something. Well, we know on my own understanding, I had to put a another pet to sleep. Very, very hard, and in my, I always knew that I would probably longer than I did. So, how do you deal with these kind of things? You can talk about intellectually, you know it, but in our practice, Hi. Right. Well, I think what you're pointing to, and I want you to correct me if I'm not right on target with what you're saying, but the, is your point is something that we were actually coming to at some of the point, which is it is about honoring not just our pets and everything, but honoring life, honoring our experiences, honoring our feelings that look, We can say, well, you're just suffering because, you know, you still have attachment or something. But look, we all, that's just part of being human. I was recently reading, uh, there was a very famous um, Thai monk who was considered kind of, in a way, the father of the modern Thai forest tradition. Uh, His name was Ajahn Mun. And he was very respected and famous, he died, I think, in the 1940s, 49 or something like that. And the people around him, actually, um, Mahabua, who was still alive but is pretty old, is considered, if I don't know what enlightenment is necessarily, but he's considered to be fully enlightened. And he was had spent, I think, 10 years with Ajahn Mun. He was there when he died and he was talking in his uh, autobiography about these monks who were, considered to be so advanced in their meditation. And he was telling these stories of all these incredible meditative states. And when Ajahn Mun was dying, they were bereft. You know, they were crying. And they were just, after he died, you know, even though the whole teaching had been getting into the, about not clinging and getting a deeper level of freedom. And, you know, They spent days just moping around. And some of them just thought, you know, they were lost. What do I do now? When the Buddha's chief disciples died, Sariputta and, and Moggallana, um, the Buddha said it was like the sun and the moon had gone out. So I think it is important to recognize that as part of being a human being, You know, if your pet dies or a beloved one or we have difficulties in ourselves, it's like it is painful. So this teaching is not saying that that stops happening, that the, the process of being human stops. okay? But what happens is, is that we can try to start to have more less of an adversarial relationship with ourselves and our experience. And what I mean by that is, I, I think that that's true when I say, for many of us, the relationship we have with with who we are or think we are or the experience we have, is, it's really sad. We, can't, we don't want to feel that pain because it hurts, right? We don't want to feel the difficulties. So one level of coming to Dharma kind of practices is that often people think, well, I'm not going to suffer because I'm going to be more calm and peaceful and serene and less stressed out and then I won't have so much suffering. I won't feel all these difficult feelings. And that is true. That's a whole level on which Dharma practice does work. That's on the conditional level. There's also an unconditional level, and we don't have to be fully enlightened to start tasting it, That, and it's the title of um, John Kabat-Zinn's book, Full Catastrophe Living. We just let it rip, the full expression of who and what we are. We're not standing in its way. When there's grief, we have grief. But can we allow ourselves to, to have the grief and not add on another layer of suffering? Because, because we can't, which I'm not suggesting that you're doing. But this is the point. You know, the famous simile that the Buddha used, which was, is called uh, the simile of the, the two darts or the two arrows when someone asked the Buddha, what is the difference between an ordinary person and a fully enlightened person? And the Buddha said, both the ordinary and the fully enlightened person experience their human beings. You know, the Buddha, he got in arguments with his relatives, he had a bad back. Sometimes he would say, you know, my back hurts, you know, I gotta go rest, Ananda, you go give the Dharma talk, he had to lie down. He was a human being. That's one level of dukkha that we all experience. The ordinary, that's like being shot once with an arrow. You feel the pain of it. We feel the pleasure too, right? We get both. The ordinary person, in addition to feeling that suffering, adds a second layer of suffering. It's like shooting themselves a second time with a second arrow because they get in reaction, aversion to the unpleasant. We can't allow that to be there. Does that make any sense? Does that make any sense? You're looking at me funny. (laughs) And it doesn't necessarily make it go away. Look. Yeah. And I'm not just talking to you. I'm just kind of going off. So I just happened to look over. Maybe you weren't looking at me funny. I don't know. Sorry. (laughs) Um, You know, my father died um, last year and he had been sick. For many years. To the point where he had what I consider to be really no quality of life at all. And there was a lot going on in our family where some people wanted to keep him alive. He was on these feeding tubes and all this stuff keeping him alive. And I was thinking, you know, let the man go. So we had different differences in the family. And after many years like this, which I just thought was horrible, and he died... Actually, I'm feeling an emotion coming up right now thinking about it. It's my dad. Even though it was a great blessing for him, you know, I was happy that he wasn't in that suffering anymore because he, he had no prospect of getting better. But, you know, it's my dad. So I had that mix of feelings and everything. That's just being a human being. So I think that that's a normal level of feeling loss and pain. And when that happens, we need to find a way to to be present with our experience, which means the reactivity part, somehow we have to find a way. And this practice is a practice, Vipassana practice is one of learning to be more and more present with our experience. And so we don't start with the hardest thing. We start, sit down and just try to be with the breath. And then slowly as the practice deepens, and that's actually if any of you were planning to come this Saturday to this Anapanasati Sutta class that is really going through the whole progression in breath meditation, we we're able to be present with more and more. Okay. But we need to start looking so we don't want to be surprised about impermanence. That's all. We just need to come to it terms beyond the intellectual level because what starts to happen is the, and it happens just naturally in the practice. As you start to see more, you start to see the nature of change more and more. Things that used to hold a fascination for us start to fall away more. And a perfect example I'm finding in myself is, is just... Um, I was talking about earlier about aging. And I know for some of you who maybe are older, you're not thinking 52 is much to be complaining about. My mother doesn't give me any sympathy. But it's a good example of a place that you can start to work and to come to more peace at it, uh, around it, right? Now, I'm not saying I'm in perfect peace around it, but it's an area that I think I have come to out of the Dharma practice. So it's a perfect example of dealing with impermanence. I do need to throw one more bit in on impermanence because it's actually even, turns out to be even a little worse than, I shouldn't say worse, um, well, it's not that things are here for a while, but they aren't gonna stick around. There's another level of direct meditative insight that sees that everything is, there's only constant change going on all the time, actually. Modern physics knows even if you look on the, at you know, the atomic level, you know, this seems solid, right? I'm holding this bell up here. But even modern atomic theory will tell us that if you look down, then there's the electrons, the neutrons, and the protons, and then, you know, it goes off into... I'm not even trying to get into the subatomic, and please forgive me, any physicists out here, I'm kind of going to screw this up, but we know that there's some model, say, like, if, if the nucleus is maybe the size of, I don't know, you know, a baseball or a grapefruit, then the electrons, which I don't know, maybe the size of a pea, something like that, are, are going around the nucleus at... at I forgot, I think it's a few hundred yards or half a mile, I don't know, far away, revolving around. And the atom itself is mostly all just empty space, right? It's not solid. If this is all really an illusion. It's a real good illusion. There's no doubt about it. Right now, you know, this... Seems solid to me, but there's even another level that we can start to get to, where the the mind settles enough if we if we put enough into the practice, where we see directly that changing nature. As a matter of fact, there's even a level where you know. So if you're working with any experience in your meditation and you see. Maybe the breath. So you put your awareness on the breath. And most of us, I think, would feel the sensations of the breath. And if you made a point, you could notice, to look at it, you could notice the fact that it's changing. But you probably mostly just notice the sensations. There's actually a level where it flips completely around. And what you what pops out is change itself. And then if you make an effort, you can maybe see the sensations. But it's actually the change. So that's a whole nother level that may or may not be of interest, you know, if you if you take your meditation at that point. But the point is of it is not to go around thinking everything's an illusion, but just to help break our grip on trying to hold things to be some fixed way. The only reason I think any of this is useful, at least for myself, is because If we start to just let go a little bit, and this is where I think the good news is. Rather than doing what most of us do most of the time, if we're honest, which is we're trying to hold on. We're trying to set our lives up to be a certain way, right? Who's not doing that? We may have whatever... Idea. It may be very crisp and in focus, or it may be kind of vague, but some sense of what a good life would be for us. So hopefully, we're doing whatever we're doing to try and move life in that way. We want a better job, maybe, or a good education, good relationship, nice place to live, whatever we do in our lives, right? Nothing wrong with that. I don't think we're going to stop doing that. We shouldn't stop doing that. It's okay to take care of ourselves. But the problem is. Uh, while we're in the process of creating life to be what we want it to be, moment by moment, we get what we get. So the question is, what are we going to do with you get what you get? Once we realize that things change and we, we start just to loosen our clinging, our attachment, our grip, just in that letting go, there is a sense of inner freedom that comes up more. We're just more... You know, it's kind of like the cliche of we're just kind of going with the flow of things better. It's really very simple stuff we're talking about. The more we practice and we're able to do it, the more we're able to carry it even through more challenging situations. That's all. That's the whole thing. I remember a time on uh, this long meditation retreat I was talking about where I had been, I think I'd been meditating for... However many months, and I had a number of months to go. So you know, you know, sometimes it felt like a lot, and it was, and you know, so when difficulties would come up, I remember times when maybe, along with all the really incredible meditative states and all that, there's also times of depression or loneliness or despair or difficulties that just come up. you, You know, it would be hard. Because there's no distraction. You can't, you, there's nothing to do but just be there with those feelings. It was very hard. Once I really started to see deeper into impermanence, it shifted everything because you start to see that all these things come and go. And I didn't take it so seriously like if, if loneliness came. Yeah, it's unpleasant. I didn't care for it. But you know what? It got to be less of a big deal. Because you know these things come and go. Sure enough, it's stuck around for a while and then it's gone. So it enabled me just to ride through much more, with a much more steady equanimity. Not getting so caught when the difficulties come and also not getting so over-exuberant when the good stuff came. I appreciated it when the mind was clear and sharp and the body was just at ease and you're really deep in and, you know, all these meditative states. It's great. And they don't last. It used to be that when they'd go away, I thought my meditation is screwing up. You know? A good meditation would be, um, uh, you know, peaceful, clear, concentrated blissful, whatever that is for each person. And, you know what a bad meditation is? Whatever. Sleepy, restless, body hurts. And you learn just to ride through all that stuff. We don't get in such a reaction because it's, it's nothing going wrong when the meditation shifts. It just changed. It's nothing going wrong when changes happen in our lives. It's, that's what happens. And so... Can we find a way in which our happiness is not so dependent? I don't know if you totally get free, but not so dependent on having to have life be some certain way and having it definitely not be some other way. And it's more about what's the relationship we're having with whatever experience there is in the moment. We can shift our relationship to present moment experience. That's the whole thing. That's the place of this reflection on anicca impermanence. We don't have to go to this cave and meditate, you know, 12 hours a day and see that everything's dissolving away. You know, we don't, that's not it. Just we start plugging in to whenever, whatever level in our lives. The more we let go, it says, it's uh, Ajahn Chah said, and I think I'll just end with this, um, he said He said, "Do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect any praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace." If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So, this insight into working with Anicca, impermanence, is just a tool, really, in the service of learning how to let go more. not caring, how do you differentiate that? Well... So you may have different meanings to that word, but when I hear it, not care. You mean like indifference or yeah, yeah, yes. That's not what's being talked about at all. As a matter of fact, and and I'm really actually thank you for bringing that up because I think that's important. Um, And it touches into a lot of things. Like well, if I've completely let go, why would I do anything or why would I, you know? But think about it. There's there is something. Even people who have I don't know why, but actually the more I found this for myself to the the deeper levels I've been able to touch in about non-clinging and other people find that this is true too, it just seems to be the way that life is set up. Actually, a deeper level of compassion and caring naturally arises. I don't know why that's true. There is a near enemy. Sometimes we talk about near and far enemies. The near enemy is something that masks so, for example, indifference can, uh, can mask as having let go or non-clinging. But it's not the same thing. What non-clinging does, because the indifference is, is actually has some you know, aversion contained within it. It's the place that has to cut off something. Because I don't want to... It's like it cuts it off. Non-clinging is the opposite. It completely opens to everything. We actually can experience life, ourselves, everything, even more deeply. We're actually more connected and more engaged than ever because the reactivity is gone. Because when we take away the reactivity, we're able to actually be more fully present. And I think many people in their own practices here, I'm sure, know that. And if not, as you practice, you will see for yourself. And I think it's just a continuing opening to deeper levels of being able to just really deeply open to... Ourselves in our lives, um, so I don't know why that is, but and that's you know compassion's talked about a lot mm-hmm. in Buddhism. So and and you know also when that illusion of solidity starts to break down, and we start to see more that those separate boundaries really aren't so separate, and and you know it's kind of in early buddhism they didn't talk about the term interconnectedness the original a lot of the western dharma teachers you'll hear them talk about you know we're all interconnected the buddha didn't there's no interconnectedness there but there is an experience like that that happens when we're not so contracted into some rigid little separate self that we think we are and as that starts to relax open we really do start to be more connected than ever you so still feel Right, it's the reactivity that's gone. The ability to feel um, should grow. Not only that, but the ability to be with more and more. One of the things that happens in the meditation, and for people who are new, you should know this, people who've been doing it already know this, is that um, as we quiet down, and that takes a while in the meditation just to learn to quiet down some, it's like you take the lid off a lot of things that had been masked, and unseen, are going to come roaring up to the surface. So you're going to see things about yourself that really you probably didn't want to even know was in there. And it might not be easy, but it's things that are there we're able to see more and feel it and be present with it more without judging and reacting. And so then how we act in the world actually, hopefully, is more effective than ever because rather than being in reaction... We can just be more present and then act out of, a de- not out of reaction, but just out of what's appropriate. Can you take that one more step further? What if you are feeling that and you are say, expressing the feelings that you're having, it's okay to have these feelings that you're having. You're just expressing it, but then the outward world and how they react to you might not be so great. Right. But that's just a question of what's... So there's two different things here. One is mm-hmm. how you or any of us are with our experience and with our feelings. And by the way, there's no should here. We're not saying you should be able to be present with your experience. We all have a level where it's too much for us. We're not to the point yet where it's either physical pain or something emotional, where you know what, that's crossed the line of where I'm able to be fully present and conscious. So we need to recognize that, and if we have crossed that line, that's where we need to be kind to ourselves and kind of back off a little bit. So that's one thing. But to the ever-deepening degrees, we can be present with more and more with ourselves. Now, how we express that, you know, maybe there's, you know, I think you know that there's some situations where you may want to express, and maybe there's people are receptive, and there's other situations where, you know, it may not be the most skillful thing to do if people don't want to hear it. And then you, I guess... Hopefully, if you are in a place of being more mindful and awake rather than reactive, then you can have more choice on whether you would express it or not is, is the best thing I know to say about it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, because I mean, I mean, that's what I see. I mean, in myself, that's where I see it. I'm in touch with myself, but I want to express it. And in some situations, like you say it's not right. appropriate or you know, that person isn't able to accept it yeah. the way that you, want you well. would hope they would accept it. Yeah. You might get defensive. and yeah. might, you know, take it personally, or you mm-hmm. know, whatever. And all you're doing is expressing. So, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm just bringing it up just because it's yeah. something that I think about, and sometimes it's kind of hard to know where that line. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know the answer to that, and I think we've all had times where we've expressed things that I could tell you a few stories myself where <laughs> yeah, it wasn't so good, mm-hmm. and then there's a consequence there. So, you know, well, okay. Um so we're we we do not have much time left tonight. Um well um so anyway that's I guess what I wanted to say. I I kinda want to see if any more thoughts are yeah. Richard, is there something you can um suggest as a practice uh application uh, with this? Well I like, certainly you know as like you were saying earlier, you know, we did these kind of things before analyzing L what else going to become something else that's gonna kind of really Well... None of us have totally gotten it. I mean, really, on the, you know, there's levels where we're reactive, we get caught. It's just our habitual conditioning has not been all worked out yet. That's That's why this is a, you know, it's just a path we're on in a process. Um, I was going to just, let me just offer up a few thoughts on if you wanted to work with it this week on what you might do, and if anybody chooses to do it, and if you're here next week, Maybe we'll start off with seeing if there's any discussion over how that was for people. So the first thing is, I've already talked about, through the meditation practice as the the level of concentration and and the mindfulness was really more than the concentration, as that deepens, we naturally, without even trying, you just naturally are more aware of, of impermanence, and we naturally see the pain of trying to hold on to things that can't be held on to. And so there's a natural letting go that tends to happen. And that's just an ongoing process. That's one level. And in that way, we could say that the ability to be free and happy and at ease and at peace in the midst of our lives is a fruit of the practice. But in addition to being a fruit of the practice, we can, it can take it on as the practice too, that the non-clinging and working with impermanence can be a practice. So, this week, there's several ways you might look at it. One, I have two things in mind. One is is just when you remember, and you'll forget many times, but as much as you can remember, just noticing change. That's one thing. You can just walk around, noticing. You know, things are just in change and moving, things aren't staying still. Noticing the body. You wake up. When I wake up in the morning, I usually don't, I don't know why, I just don't feel that good. And once I get up after half an hour, I feel better. It just changes. Noticing the changes, whatever, mentally, physically. Another way that I think that I have found very helpful about noticing change is if something comes up that you're really gripped in, and I'll focus on difficulties, although this could go for things that are very pleasant also. If you really have anger, difficulty, loneliness, despair, depression, anything notice it connect with it to the amount that you're able and and that you want to be with it in the moment if you can remember that this is going to change see if not cutting off not saying this is going to change and I'm going to hold on till this bad thing goes away and it makes you more grip but just to be as present as you can and to know just reflect. Okay, I'm in it. It doesn't feel good. This sucks. You know, I want this to go away. Try to relax. No. no, it's going to change. And just see if that reflection, which it may or may not, just lets you hold it a little more lightly in the moment, even before it changes. So that we're able to actually be present with it a little better. Just reflect and see. And the last thing I'll just mention, I got this from um, Joseph Goldstein. At you, you may have heard him say this when we were at... Uh, on retreat uh, last year, and I used it a lot. It was very helpful. He was talking about when he had been on long retreats and had a lot of loneliness and difficulties and worrying about his practice and everything. And he said he reflected. He told himself, Joseph, in a month, you're not even going to remember this. <laughs> and I think back for myself so many days when I was worrying about the practice or I was just lonely and, oh, man, I got six months to go and I want to go home and can't go home because I told everybody I'm going to go for you know <laughs> a year and what am I going to do and all of that and I would just say you know in a month I, and it's true I have a vague rec- it's just in that time it was so big so to see if in the moment it just helps reflecting on impermanence that way you know and we, we can talk and see if, if it does and we'll also hopefully move into Duka next week. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we, we have to stop. Um, well, look, it's three minutes after nine. Um, I'm going to do a one minute little meta to end. If you need to get up and leave, please do. And I, I apologize for going over and I'll try next time to end on time. So but for those who are going to stay, um, you know, please, I just invite you that if you have not been connected in with your your body or your breathing or your experience, just to connect back in and just to notice whatever is present in your experience now, whether it's in the body or feelings, emotions, thoughts. And just also to notice your relationship with that experience. If it's if you're restless or if it's real unpleasant, are you able to be just to sit with it and be with it? Or, or if not, just to notice that it's hard to be with it. And then see if, if, it, if you can open to it that sense of loving kindness to yourself, which is a great, really a self-acceptance for whatever is real and true for you, for who you are, for what you are, for what your experience is. And just allowing yourself to hold. It's almost like holding yourself with just great love and tenderness and caring. And just deep acceptance. That alone could be a practice that one could do for a long time. But also, let's just take a few moments for those who would like to take that same sense of caring and acceptance and then actually radiating out that metta, which is this loving kindness to everyone else here in this room and then to just let it radiate out also really into the community and really to just to the whole world and not leaving out any, any people, any beings at all. And if you don't feel loving kindness, that's all right. It could just be a thought or an intention or a wish or a prayer. May all beings everywhere be happy and be free from suffering. And then finally, I'll just end with this short prayer from the Metta Sutta. These are uh, words of the Buddha on loving kindness. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings,